Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Dolly, Lily, and Jane. Okay, but it's going to have to be a comedy. And I'm going to have to have the least interesting role. <laughs> took a year to convince them to do it, and it was a huge success. That, of course, is actress Jane Fonda talking about how the 1980 hit film 9 to 5 came about. It's from Silver Streams, the terrific podcast from the programming team at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center, the home of the D.C. Labor Film Fest since we first launched 21 years ago. We love working with Todd, Abby, and Ben, and we also love their podcast and wanted to share it with you to give you a sense of just how deep their knowledge and enthusiasm for the movies is. In this episode, Todd, Abby, and Ben go deep, and I mean deep, on 9 to 5 for its 40th anniversary, and I think you'll really enjoy their insights into the film and everything that makes this box office hit an enduring labor classic. So, here it is, Silver Streams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Alga, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. This week, we're going to preview all of the new films premiering this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, recap the films that opened in previous weeks that are currently available to view there, and close with our programmer's pick section. This is episode 31 of Silver Streams. We began this podcast in early April, shortly after closing the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launching our virtual cinema program. And we would like to thank everyone out there who has been listening to the podcast. Uh, each week, we continue to see the numbers climb higher and higher, and it's just wonderful to see. Thank you all uh, for listening. Um, some of our uh, most recent episodes have actually become our most popular of all time, uh, led by episode 28, where we uh, interviewed Eddie Muller from TCM's Noir Alley and the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation. And also episode 26, where we discussed two of the greatest films starring Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Uh, in the case of Joan Crawford, Mildred Pierce, and in the case of Betty Davis, All About Eve. So thank you all for listening to Silver Streams. And also big, a big thank you to everyone who has been screening films at home from our virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our extended closure. Thank you all for supporting The Silver during this challenging time. And just a reminder, you can find all of the titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com silver. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can always email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com slash silver in our Friday e-blast and across our social media channels. And we are on all the places that you usually find your podcasts.
In addition to discussing the films we have available as virtual cinema, each week we also like to discuss some other ideas for films that you can view at home, this being our Programmer's Picks section. And this week, we're going to discuss a film celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. It was a clever workplace comedy that combined a spotlight on up-to-the-minute social issues with an homage to 40s-era female ensemble comedies. It was produced by and starred one of the era's top leading ladies who handpicked as her castmates a quirky sketch comedian and a country music star with no previous screen experience. And it featured a talented writer-director who died young and is mostly forgotten today, but at the time was a hotshot rising talent in screen comedy. If you haven't worked it out yet, we're talking about nine to five. So yes, nine to five has an amazing theme song. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, it's a comedy classic. It's one of the great comic revenge fantasy films of all time. But the laughs do carry with them a serious message, as Todd mentioned, about workplace inequality. And the origins of this are very much, of course, in the real world. Uh, the idea for the film actually came from one of its stars and also its producer, although she's not credited as such, we just noticed in, in our research. And that's two-time Oscar winner Jane Fonda, who was two decades into her long acting career by 1980 and had recently formed her own production company with uh, producing partner Bruce Gilbert, who is credited on the film. Coincidence? I don't know. Apparently, she had been finding it hard to get work as an actress because of her high-profile uh, anti-war activism during the Vietnam War and her subsequent surveillance by the FBI. And by the way, I highly encourage you to listen to the You Must Remember This season, um, Jean and Jane, uh, on that topic. And by 1980, Fonda's company, uh, IPC, had already co-produced Hal Ashby's Coming Home from 1978, which Jane Fonda also starred in and for which she won her second Academy Award for Best Actress. Her first was for Clute in 1971. And then they produced James Bridges' The China Syndrome in 1979, for which Fonda, again, was Oscar nominated. And so Fonda had already proved that she was seeking out serious-minded, socially engaged material to produce. And 9 to 5, despite being a comedy in its final incarnation, at least on the surface, was absolutely no exception to this. The idea for the film actually came from Fonda's close friendship with fellow activist and labor organizer, Karen Nussbaum, uh, who in 1972 had established the 9 to 5 organization for women office workers to advocate for women's rights in the workplace. And by the way, this organization is still going strong today. It's now known as the 9 to 5 National Association of Working Women, and it is the subject of the most recent documentary by uh, Julia Reichardt and uh, Stephen Bogner, 
which was recently shown in AFI Docs, Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement. Anyway, Fonda was inspired by Nussbaum and her fellow organizers, and she was shocked by some of their horrific stories of workplace uh, inequality, humiliation, harassment, and she decided that this needed to be the subject of a film. And as would be natural in drawing on this topic for inspiration, Fonda at first thought of the film as a serious social issues drama. Um, what changed this was the fact that she saw actress Lily Tomlin and her comedic one-woman show, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. By the way, Lily Tomlin, the first woman to appear solo in a Broadway show. And Fonda decided then and there that she needed to have her in this film and that consequently, Tomlin being a comedic actress, this was going to have to be a comedy. This was going to take a very serious topic of women's workplace rights and apply a comedic lens and make it an excellent satirical dark comedy. And also a comedy that could draw inspiration from the workplace screwball comedies of the, of the 40s, His Girl Friday, for example, and also the comedies of that era that were driven by their ensemble female casts. And this approach was something that the director, Jane Fonda, selected for the project, Colin Higgins, uh, at the recommendation of Lily Tomlin, by the way, really leaned into, as you can hear in the film's original trailer. 20th Century Fox presents a tribute to anyone who has ever been overworked, underpaid, and pushed to the edge by an ungrateful boss. <laughs> they arrive promptly at nine, because if they're not on time, they know they'll get the sack. But before they begin the daily grind, the boss takes his cup black. And then now I'm going to let Jane Fonda herself basically tell the story I just told, but much better. And also tell us how she decided on the film's third star. And then one night I saw Lily Tomlin in her one-woman show, In Search of Intelligent Life in the Universe, and I basically fell in love. And I said, I can't make a movie about secretaries unless she's one of the secretaries. And this is a true story. On the way home, I turned on the radio and Dolly Parton was singing Two Doors Down and my hair stood on end. She'd never made a movie. I thought, oh my Lord. <laughs> Dolly, Lily, and Jane. Okay, but it's gonna have to be a comedy. And I'm gonna have to have the least interesting role. <laughs> took a year to convince them to do it, and it was a huge success. And then it was Lily's idea to get Colin Higgins. My challenge as one of the producers was to, in a short amount of time, educate Colin Higgins on everything that I had learned about secretaries. So the organization, which was called the Association of, of Office Workers, 925, in Cleveland, I flew him to Cleveland and we went there and my friend organized about, about 40 women of all shapes and sizes and races and <clears throat> they sat in a circle and he asked to go around and have each of the women tell their stories, which they did. And when that was over, the genius, he said, do any of you ever fantasize what you'd like to do to your boss? Oh my Lord. And I mean, some of the things we couldn't put in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and kicking off the cast list is the brilliant Lily Tomlin who plays the veteran secretary and leader of the trio, Violet Newstead. Okay, okay, I'm gonna leave, but I'm gonna tell you one thing before I go. Don't you ever refer to me as your girl again. What in God's name are you talking about? 
Dorlene, what are we going to do about this chair? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm no girl. I'm a woman. Do you hear me? I'm not your wife or your mother or even your mistress. What? Mm -mm. I am your employee. And as such, I expect to be treated equally with a little dignity and a little respect. Tomlin got her start as a stand-up comedian and working off-Broadway in the 1960s. Her first on-screen role was in The Gary Moore Show. Uh, that was also a launching pad for Don Knotts, Jonathan Winters, and Carol Burnett, among others. But her first big TV break was on the variety show Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, where she played various characters from 1969 to approximately 1973. Um, and... Similar to the Gary Moore show, she was also playing characters and doing these variety type things. And by 1971, she released her first comedy album, This Is a Recording, where she played many of the characters from Laughin and the Gary Moore show that she had made popular. The album was a big hit and won her a Grammy for Best Comedy Recording. By 1974, she made her film debut in Robert Altman's Nashville as Linda Reese, for which she was Oscar nominated. And in 1977, she won the Silver Bear for Best Actress in Berlin for Robert Benton's The Late Show. Uh, around the same time, she was starring in a one-woman show, which we just touched on, uh, written by her writing partner and future wife, Jane Wagner, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. And Wagner would go on to direct her in a film the following year, Moment by Moment, that was critically panned upon release but Tomlin doesn't regret the role and learn from uh, the harsh criticism there. And of course, that one-woman show, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, uh, is where Jane Fonda saw her and thought she had to be in 9 to 5. She was perfect for, for the film. In 9 to 5, she really showcases her range with lots of witty one-liners and some real dramatic heft at times. I think it's a really perfect showcase for her, uh, for her talents as a performer, Although she was a bit nervous herself um, when she came on to the film, she, she actually came on set a week after they started shooting. And she even told producer Bruce Gilbert that um, he could take her out of the movie if it wasn't working. If it, if it wasn't something that didn't seem like it was working, that they could cut her. But she soon had those doubts uh, lifted when she saw the dailies. And um, by her own admission, she, she knew she was doing a good job. And she went back and told Bruce to forget she ever said it. And of course, the three leads got on swimmingly um, on the set, but they also had great on-screen chemistry that really shines through and you can see in the film. After 9 to 5, Tomlin would go on to star in many feature films, uh, including All of Me and Big Business in the 1980s. Into the 90s, she worked again with Robert Altman on Shortcuts, uh, was in Flirting with Disaster and Tea with Mussolini in the 2000s and even into the early 2010s. She's in I Heart Huckabee's Prayer Home Companion and a recent favorite of mine, an underseen gem, Grandma, in 2015. And of course, she's great in all these different roles and great in 9 to 5. Uh, but besides that super memorable role in, in 9 to 5, for me, I think she's most memorable. And I remember her most fondly as Miss Frizzle on one of my favorite shows as a kid, the Magic School Bus. And the third member of this wonderful comedic trio is, of course, Dolly Parton as Secretary Dora Lee Rhodes. 
Parton uh, in 1980, uh, by, by the time it's 1980, had been a successful country music singer-songwriter going back all the way to the late 1960s with a string of number one singles to her name, uh, as well as many other singers scoring hits covering her material during this time. And but had won a, a number of Grammy Awards, had made many, many television appearances, including a 1979 TV special she did with Lily Tomlin's old friend from the Gary Moore show, Carol Burnett, called Carol and Dolly in Nashville. But Dolly had set her sights on pop chart crossover success uh, beginning around the mid, mid to late 1970s. And she really hit it big in 1977 with her album, Here You Come Again, which was her first million-selling album and one that got a lot of play in my parents' household back then. Uh, and then a few years later, when 9 to 5 arrives, Dolly was a household name as a singer and a trooper with lots of showbiz savvy and variety show experience, but playing a role in a feature film was definitely something new. So perhaps it was a leap of faith trading on her celebrity and charm. Perhaps it was inspired casting, but whatever it was, it definitely worked. Dolly wowed everyone with her performance in this film. So you've been telling everybody I'm sleeping with you, huh? No. Well, that explains it. That's why these people treat me like some dime store no, bluesy. No, they think not. I'm screwing the boss. That's not it at all. Oh, and you just love it, don't you? It gives you some sort of cheap thrill, like knocking over pencils and picking sure, up papers. Now, let's don't get excited. Get your scummy hands off of me. Look, I've been straight with you from the first day I got here, and I put up with all your pinching and staring and chasing me around the desk because I need this job, but this is the last straw. Look, all right, now, wait. Let's, let's, let's just sit down and... Look, I got a gun out there in my purse, huh. and up to now I've been forgiven and forgetting because of the way I was brought up, but I'll tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine. And I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. <laughs> Don't think I can't do it. Well, that's an absolute classic, Dolly Parton. Amazing. But as we heard in the earlier clip of Jane Fonda talking about the film, she actually envisioned her role in the film as Judy Burnley, the office newbie who's forced to find work after her husband leaves her for his much younger secretary as the least interesting of the three roles. And certainly I think it is the most understated and subdued role, uh, but it's also kind of a perfect balance to Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton's characters. And it's also Judy's character coming to the office, uh, which is the catalyst that kind of inadvertently shakes things up and, and changes everything there. And her naivety and her coyness and her sense of propriety makes for a really fantastic contrast to the more cynical and experienced Violet Newstead or the more gregarious and extroverted Dorley Rhodes. And of course, Fonda also gets some of the absolutely best killer lines of dialogue, especially when she finally gets the courage to tell her smarmy ex-husband where to go when he tries to call back for a second chance. And during the stoned murder fantasy sequence with Mr. Hart, uh, in some ways, her transformation in the film is maybe the most satisfying of the three. I don't know who I'm not such a bad guy. You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. Who doesn't? And then speaking of the film's infamous murder fantasy sequences, uh, we also heard in the earlier clip of Jane Fonda talking about the film that this part of the movie was actually the idea of director Colin Higgins. 
the original screenplay, which was written by Patricia Resnick, was much darker than this. In her version, the three women actually tried to kill the boss uh, in all sorts of weird and funny ways and succeed in doing so. Uh, but Fonda was worried that making the film this dark might alienate viewers and make it hard for them to empathize or sympathize with the central characters. And then when Colin Higgins came on board, uh, he scrapped the idea of actual murder altogether. Uh, he added the fantasy sequence and he made the film a much broader, more mainstream comedy. And while this approach certainly worked in terms of the, the box office appeal and, and the film itself is great, I will say I would absolutely watch the Patricia Resnick version of the film, uh, which in her one-line summation is a film about, quote, three secretaries with the worst boss in the world who hate him so much they try to kill him. Simple but effective. Uh, Resnick was actually only 26 when she wrote 9 to 5. Uh, she'd already worked with Robert Altman, co-writing screenplays for 1978's The Wedding and 1979's Quintet. Um, she met Lily Tomlin when she was working as a production assistant to Altman on 1977's The Late Show, uh, in which, as Ben mentioned, Tomlin starred. Tomlin took a shine to her and had her write some sketches, sketches which, by the way, ended up in part going into Tomlin's one-woman show, the one which inspired Jane Fonda to cast her in 95. Um, Resnick apparently had read about the film uh, in, in the trade publications and that Jane Fonda was making it with Lily Tomlin and, and Dolly Parton uh, set to star in it. She knew she wanted to be part of it. Uh, she got Lily Tomlin to arrange a meeting with Fonda. She pitched herself and she got the job. Uh, so from the start, the screenplay was written with Fonda, Tomlin, and Parton in mind, which of course partly explains why they all seem absolutely perfectly cast in each of the roles. Uh, Resnick did a really good job. Uh, she also did a bunch of research for the film by spending time with office workers at the Fox Studios insurance company. And it was there that she met several women who directly inspired the three characters we see in the film. So yes, this film has a fantastic or fantasy element to it but again it's very much grounded in the real lived experiences of women in the workplace and yes when Colin Higgins came on board he did rework the script as we've mentioned but knowing that Resnick had already written for Tomlin and that she knew the three lead actresses she was writing for I have to imagine that the incredible whip smart hilarious dialogue as delivered by Fonda Tomlin and Parton in the film was absolutely there in Resnick's version of the screenplay and of course, she did go on to write the libretto for the Broadway version of the film that uh, opened in 2009. And again, the film's hilarious, the script's hilarious, but the stories that it drew on and con that continued and continue to be a reality for women in the workplace long, long after this film was released are no laughing matter. I mean, really, maybe these women should have murdered Mr. Hart in the film. Maybe Patricia Resnick was, was onto something. And a few additional points of interest about the film's director, Colin Higgins. Uh, I, I mentioned before that he's really a forgotten name now, but at the time he was really on a hot streak as a feature film writer, director and specifically comedy going back to the early seventies. He had made his name with uh, writing screenplays for a, a couple of films that uh, earned a, a measure of success and, in, in one case, and uh, admiration maybe in the other, and, and maybe a longer tale on the eventual success. So in 1971, he writes the screenplay for Harold and Maude, directed by Hal Ashby, which 
maybe wasn't a huge breakout hit at the time, but over the years became a real cult classic. And then in 1976, he's the screenwriter on a film called Silver Streak, featuring the pairing of Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, directed by Arthur Hiller. Um, now, Silver Streak is much less and 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 remembered today, and maybe not with a, a lot of um, critical appreciation. But this was a hit movie at, at the time, and and Pryor and Wilder were a hot comedic pairing. Um, and this is also a film that was always on cable through the 80s. I saw it a lot as a kid. And that really was a springboard for where Higgins went next. So on the strength of that, he managed to write and direct for the first time the movie Foul Play in 1978, another cable stalwart of the 80s, a, a Hitchcock homage spoofy murder mystery starring Chevy Chase, very hot, having recently uh, made the leap from Saturday Night Live to feature films and Goldie Hawn and uh, a movie I've watched dozens of times over the years as as a youth and and definitely in, enjoyed long before I understood all of the references to Hitchcockian suspense plots. So by the time Higgins is hired for for nine to five, he really has a full head of steam behind him um, as a as a comedy writer director. Uh, a few years later, uh, after the big success of Nine to Five, huge success really, he would team up again with Dolly Parton on the screen adaptation of the stage musical The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas in 1982 with Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. And again, I feel like I need to just remind people, back in 1982, that was about the hottest pairing in showbiz you could possibly have. Burt Reynolds was the king of box office through the 70s into the early 80s. Uh, that was a major release. It wasn't well received, but it was uh, very much an A-list star pairing um, at the time. Higgins tragically received an AIDS diagnosis in 1985 and would die in 1988. Among the projects left unfinished at the time of his death was a script called Washington Girls, which was to have reunited the three leads from nine to five. And these three leads of Fonda, Tomlin, and Parton are absolutely wonderful together, all very funny, great chemistry among the three of them. And it's a lot of fun for us to watch them come together as a team uh, and, and unite against the film's villain. But I think this is where we pause to also give props to the actor playing the film's villain. Film needs a good villain, right? And it has a great one as played by Dabney Coleman here, a great, great comedic villain. And uh, I think just really well-conceived everything that they loaded onto this character of Franklin M. Hart Jr. And just Coleman's wonderful, smarmy, uh, delivery of it, and uh, I, of course, the the rundown of his many many sins, uh, the sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot uh, <laughs> line uh, that is uh, leveled at him, and which he fulfills and checks all those boxes very clearly. Um, so Coleman was a in, just an incredibly prolific actor through well through his whole career, but um, in terms of where he was around 1980. When you look at his filmography through the 70s, he's got tons and tons and tons of television credits, as well as a few interesting, very 70s film credits, uh, feature films, such as uh, Rolling Thunder. And uh, around 1980, he's in Melvin and Howard as well. But this is really where he takes it to another level and starts to get cast in more prominent films 
sometimes it's a smaller role, a supporting role, because he is, in, in essence, a character actor. But he just had a really nice run through, starting around here through the rest of the 80s. Uh, I mentioned Melvin and Howard. After 9 to 5, he uh, reunites with Jane Fonda in On Golden Pond, 1981, one of the biggest films of, of that time, of course. Uh, Oscar winner for, for Jane's father, Henry Fonda, Catherine Hepburn. Um, and I thought it was kind of a, a, a neat turnabout that in, in this movie, uh, Jane has uh, is opposite Dabney Coleman as, as her boyfriend in that movie. Uh, the very next year, 1982, uh, Tootsie, of course, one of the most celebrated comedies of, of this era. Uh, and then a, a number of films that were more youth-oriented. Uh, War Games, 1983, very early uh, computer-oriented suspense movie, Matthew Broderick. Uh, Muppets Take Manhattan, of course, big ensemble cast, but uh, Daphne's in there. Cloak and Dagger, I loved this film. I'm not going to try to explain it to anyone now, but if if you were a kid in the 80s, you know this film very well uh, from, from many cable uh, airings of it, uh, featuring Henry Thomas from E.T., of course. And then a, a film that I've got a soft spot for, uh, that not many people do, but the the movie adaptation of Dragnet, starring uh, Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, uh, Dabney Coleman again in comedic villain role there, and just really really good doing that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, Nine to Five could not be everything that it is without Dabney Coleman being such such a great villain and so wonderful to root against. And he's of course a big part of what makes this film so funny. So speaking of comedy, this film was made in 1980, which is very clear in the office decor and the office equipment and in everyone's outfits and hairstyles. And you do sometimes hear it referred to as dated, uh, both in its comedic style and in the issues that it lampoons. Uh, but actually, firstly, as I've already said, the comic aspects of the film, in my opinion, have aged really well, particularly all of the excellent dialogue. and. Secondly, is it really that dated uh, in the type of workplace culture that it's satirizing? Okay, yes, a lot's improved for women in the workplace since 1980, but none of the issues have really gone away. Um, you know, in addition to ongoing sexual harassment issues, so much of what these three women want to implement in the film, things like on-site daycare, flexible hours, job sharing, equal pay, women at executive level, still haven't really become a reality in most corporations and in most offices. Um, and if anything, the films become more relevant and better received with age as the issues that it highlights have moved further and further into mainstream discourse. Um, the world was, you know, on the cusp of changing when Resnick was writing the script. Uh, you never hear the words sexual harassment in the film, for example, and that's because it was 1980. That wasn't really in the common lexicon in, in a way that it is now. But in putting this issue front and center in the way that it does, along with suggesting measures that could improve the workplace for women, like equal pay, flexible hours, diversity in the workplace, childcare provisions, as I've already mentioned, nine to five was actually pretty radically ahead of its time. Um, and in some ways now things are actually even harder for women, for all workers actually. And I think it was Jane Fonda who joked that if nine to five were made now, it would just be called 24 seven because yes, most people would kill for a nine to five job now. And most people are expected to be reachable and ready to work 24 hours a day. And women of course are expected to work 24 hours a day and also parent 24 hours a day. 
especially right now when the statistics show that the burden of homeschooling during the pandemic has fallen disproportionately on women. So I kind of wish that nine to five was, was more dated than it actually is, but, but sadly not, not really. Well, Abby, absolutely uh, right on with everything that you just noted there about how uh, hugely relevant all these issues still are today, 2020. Um, but one other aspect of revisiting this movie um, from the remove of 40 years from its initial release. Uh, I mean, I, rem I remembered it. I remembered enjoying it, uh, seeing it shortly after it had originally come out. Um, but it's been, a, it had been a long time since I had seen it. And to revisit this movie, everybody kind of files it away in their memories. Like, Oh yeah, it's a, it's a workplace comedy. And it is, but it's got a lot of other aspects to it as well, among other things. And, and the screenplay kind of goes through phases among other things, it's a bit of a stoner comedy as well. Um, you may or may not recall how how big a deal the sharing of a joint uh, leading to the fantasy dream sequences section is, but it's it's kind of a big part of the movie, and really diverges from from the setup of the first third of the movie in in the workplace. Um, and then with the sort of mix up of cadavers section, it, it really gets very spoofy caper for a while before coming back uh, to the workplace for the, for the film's final act. So there's, there's a lot going on here, um, a lot of different approaches to comedy, and it's just overall a, a much weirder out there movie than you, you may have recalled. It certainly is uh, a bit out there, a bit weird. Um, and although it's not necessarily something that would have been considered super edgy for the time, for a mainstream comedy, uh, there's a lot of departures from what you would have seen um, as we've touched on already and heard a clip from the fantasy murder sequences, as Todd just mentioned, the casual pot smoking. Um, and what we haven't really gotten to yet is uh, some of the blatant SNM references later on in the film. And although some of the critics were a bit disparaging of the film's light tone, I think that this tone is precisely how they were able to get away with these things with some of the more offbeat and, frankly, I guess, risque uh, stuff that, that goes on here uh, is kind of managing that tone and keeping it light. And what helps also make the film a big mainstream box office hit. And things like the fantastical murder fantasy sequences and Dabney Coleman in a spiky dog collar um, have certainly helped give the film a lasting cult appeal. And as Todd mentioned, even maybe a, some stoner movie cred um, but I think the person who really kind of solidified that cred was Ronald Reagan, uh, the Gipper himself, who at the time said that the film was funny. Uh, but one scene made me mad. A truly funny scene if the three gals had played drunk. But no, they get stoned on pot. It was an endorsement of pot smoking for any young person who sees the picture. I love that stoned on pot. Um, so... Reagan didn't approve of that, and <laughs> it's just ludicrous that they would need to, uh, you know, be be drunk instead, and that that um, would be okay, right? <laughs> right, and that's and that's the way to go. Um, but th there's other people, other uh, ways the film was received at the time that um, were, were also kind of indicative of the time, and, and in retrospect, seemed pretty ridiculous. Uh, as you might expect, there's some blatant sexism from some of the film critics uh, who reviewed the film, uh, like Vincent Canby of the New York Times, 
who said, nine to five begins as a satire, slips uncertainly into farce when Violet believes he accidentally slipped the boss a lethal dose of rat poison and concludes by waving the flag of feminism as earnestly as Russian farmers used to wave the hammer and sickle at the end of movies about collective farming. A mouthful of an insult. Um, (laughs) And Canby continues on that very same review that has a lot of choice uh, quotes uh, to, to pick out. He says, considering the militancy of nine to five, it may be fitting that the funniest performance in the film is given by Dabney Coleman. I'm not taking anything away from Dabney Coleman and saying that he, I mean, he's great, but you can't really say Dabney Coleman is the best performance in this film and just completely dismiss the three female leads. I think Canby clearly had something uh, going on that was larger than the film for him. And he he had a a case to make. (laughs) here with this review. Yes, there were detractors at the time, but there were others who saw it for the good time that it was, like Roger Ebert, who was particularly taken by Dolly's performance, saying in his review, she contains so much energy, so much life, and unstudied natural exuberance that watching her do anything in this movie is a pleasure. She exists on another plane, as Monroe did. She is a center of life on the screen. Uh, An audience has really agreed with that. The, The film took in a hundred million dollars at the box office in its lifetime and with just a budget of 10 million. So it was a massive unequivocal hit. Uh, The film also earned Dolly Parton three Golden Globe nominations, as well as a nomination for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. And the film itself, of course, is a great time, as we've uh, said many times now at this point, but inarguably its most lasting contribution is the title theme song uh, that Dolly wrote when she was mapping out the beat using her long acrylic fingernails to mimic a typewriter sound on set. The song reached number one in the charts and won two Grammys, one for Best Country Song and one for Best Country Vocal Performance. It's uh, one of those tunes you really can't get out of your head. And I know I haven't got it out of my head since I saw the film, so it's been in there for about a week. But like me, I think there's also a lot of people who may know the song without having actually seen the film. So up until just a week ago, it was the first time I got to see the film course glad i did a great movie but it's one of those songs that uh, eclipses the film itself in popularity and just to be clear about this song and and it's charting it went to number one on both the country and the pop charts which was just an, an incredible it's an incredible accomplishment and and thing to consider for two two charts that do not often sync up like that well there is definitely no denying that this film has had a long long legacy i mean we are talking about it on our claimed podcast 40 years later so that that proves it right there um, but the film led to a spin-off TV show on ABC in the 80s, by the way, starring Dolly Parton's younger sister, Rachel Dennison, in the Lee role, which I didn't know and I think is awesome. And then years later, as I mentioned, there was a musical that ran on Broadway in, in 2009 and then went to London's West End in 2019. And then a couple of years ago, there was talk of a sequel starring... 
Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and with Rashida Jones and Patricia Resnick attached to write the script. And unfortunately, I think that's been dropped uh, as far as I can see, um, although I would watch it and I think it might be exactly what the world needs right now. Um, but beyond the legacy of the film itself, the three actresses have remained great friends, particularly Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, who of course continue to work together right up to this day uh, in Grace and Frankie, the TV series, which has had six seasons and is actually about to finish shooting its uh, delayed seventh season early next year. Well, this film has been a lot of fun to revisit this past week and and discuss with Abby and Ben and unearth uh, the story of its of its creation. It holds up remarkably well. Uh, so we hope that sharing all of uh, the story of the making of this film with you has uh, piqued your interest about possibly revisiting it. It's really amazing to revisit, you know, from the remove of 40 years. As a comedy, it holds up great. Uh, as Abby uh, uh, covered, there's what the issues that it was highlighting at the time still with us today, still being worked on and improved today. Um, and it's really got an, an, an amazing legacy uh, considering where the stars' careers went went from there and the fact that they're, uh, they're still friendly and collaborating. Um, so we do encourage you to check out the film. It's, uh, it's eye-opening. Uh, as to as to how well it still still plays uh, today, and if you need any additional convincing, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that to Miss Dolly Parton one one more time. Okay, that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope that you see something that you love this week. Bye, everyone. Have a great weekend. Enjoy some EU films and hopefully 9 to 5. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we hope you join us again next week for our final episode of the year of Silver Streams. We're going to take a couple weeks off for the holiday season, uh, so be sure to check out our next episode for the last one of 2020. A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theatre and on Twitter at AFI Silver. And music for this week's episode is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more of their work on their website, sessions.blue. That's it for today's special edition of Labor Goes to the Movies. I hope you enjoyed Silver Streams. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And 
I also hope to see you at one of our weekly open sessions this month during the annual DC Labor Film Fest. Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can RSVP at the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. See you at the Labor Movies.